Hello, everyone, and welcome to JBFC Podcast, the official podcast of the Jacob Burns Film Center and Media Arts Lab. I'm your host, Andrew Jupin, and this week I'm joined by Media Arts Lab educator Sean Weiner. Sean, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Uh, this week, I thought it would be cool. Uh, on Wednesday, the Burns is screening the new Kenneth Lonergan film, Margaret. Uh, which has this gigantic backstory about, you know, they shot the film in 2005. He's been editing and working on the film since then, uh, all the while fighting with the studios, Fox Searchlight, uh, over the length of the film. And there's all sorts of legal stuff going back and forth. So it was more or less just kind of shelved uh, up until September when this movie uh, had a very, very limited, limited, limited release uh, in some select theaters. And it just got me thinking about you always hear about some famous shelved films like there's all these these urban legends about certain movies that have been made and then we'll just never, ever see the light of day. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to just sit here today and talk about a few of them uh, and then just maybe sort of wrap up talking about Margaret for a quick second. Um, so the first one, Sean, I wanted to bring up is the infamous Jerry Lewis film, The Day the Clown Cried. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know much about this film um and uh but since kind of reading up on it just now and hearing a bit from what you're about to share with our audience. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, it's it's yikes. It's yikes. Uh so basically the film was made in uh, the early 70s about 1972. The film is about uh it's also directed by Jerry Lewis and he may have also written it. Uh anyway, it's about Jerry Lewis plays a clown, a German clown, uh, who is ordered by the Nazis to make children laugh on their way to the gas chamber. This this is what we're dealing with here. And uh, the film has never been released. Uh, and it's one of those things that it's rumored to live in, you know, Jerry Lewis's estate or, or whatever. Um, and supposedly we'll never see the light of day. I would like to posit that whenever it is uh, Jerry Lewis passes on, my theory is that this movie seeing some sort of a release. I think so. How many times do you think Jerry Lewis has seen this film within the confines of his home? <laughs> well, the, I mean, I would say maybe multiple because I, yeah. the whole thing is he's very proud of the movie. Oh. He doesn't, he doesn't consider it, you know – super taboo or embarrassing in any way he's very proud of it and he's he's not the one that's stopping this movie from being released is that why it's called the day the clown cried isn't everybody else crying around like it seems a little self-centered on the protagonist yeah. who's being who actually is employed to do a horrible act i think everybody else should be the ones we're worried about not that clown making profit and i mean to be clear i've there, what you can find of this movie is screen caps of it online the script is actually available online if you search for that you can download a pdf um and there's also some footage of it not of the movie, but of on-set stuff uh, that I believe was included in some sort of documentary about Jerry Lewis, uh, some sort of made-for-TV special, not each true Hollywood story, but something along those lines. Is, and, it a, uh, is it a lot of clips of him saying, it'll be fine? <laughs> yeah, trust me on this one. It's going to work out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just what I've seen is just him, you know, sitting in a chair smoking and you know, looking over a script, you know, really working over the script to make sure everything's perfect. He's he has seen this movie at least at least two times, but more. But he definitely saw it when it was done and he knew nobody else could see it. 
and then he saw it when um uh, a beautiful life is that the name of the movie oh life is beautiful oh, he, and he saw it when life is beautiful came out yeah that's... he said wait a second <laughs> yeah yeah, very enraged that that idea was actually released in theaters. Especially in because he always intended to crawl over rows of celebrities to accept his Best Actor <laughs> Academy Award. I mean, I think the one the one difference uh, that Life is Beautiful, I mean, there's several differences, yeah. but the the one major difference in Life is Beautiful versus The Day the Clown Cried is that um, in The Day the Clown Cried, uh, Jerry Lewis isn't Jewish. Uh, whereas Roberto Benigni obviously is. Um, so I think that's the one thing that kind of, it sort of, you know, makes it a little more okay. You it's know? A, yeah, it's kind of a major shift. Yeah, yeah, it, It's yeah. absolutely okay in, in, in Life is Beautiful. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's some of what has been written about this film is, you know, saying that the the intention of the writer of the film which wasn't Jerry Lewis, um, was to have this film be, to have this kind of flawed protagonist mm-hmm. who's not really a great guy, who's kind of caught up in like this job that he shouldn't be in, but he's sort of selfish and it's just a story about a selfish man and I'm sure he changes one way or the other. But that when Jerry Lewis got his hands on it, it seemed like he was trying to turn into his own, you know, the great dictator and yeah that's yeah okay Good it's comparison. W- right it's yeah. one thing if you're mocking you know hitler for in a vaudevillian sort of historical kind of parody yeah it's a whole different thing if you're telling i mean you're going right to the darkest parts of this historical event and then doing a clown act i mean uh, yeah a clown act and i think the other thing that makes it even worse that you're making this like dramedy about the Holocaust is the fact that you're, you're kind of focusing on children, right. you know, and that's the the biggest part of right. it is, is, you know, it's not just the Holocaust and there, you know, were these gas chambers and people were put into them, children in gas chambers. Right. And, and uh, one sort of thing I want to relate about this is that one person who I no has seen this movie. I don't know him, but I know that he has seen this. Is Harry Shear uh-huh. from The Simpsons and and you know this is Spinal Tap and all the Christopher Guest movies. He actually uh, there's a clip on YouTube that you can find of him on the Howard Stern show, and he's talking about how he saw this movie back in the late '80s via VHS bootleg. Huh. And he says one of his greatest regrets is it was a time where. People weren't dubbing things. The whole like VHS underground tape exchange didn't really exist just yet. And so someone just invited Harry Shear over to their house and said, listen, I got the Jerry Lewis clown movie. Let's check this out. And he watched the entire thing. And it's basically a more or less completed work print. He said that the the music wasn't there and there wasn't uh, completed titles or anything like that. But the movie is cut and you know he to the movie's credit i guess uh (laughs) harry shear said that it's actually not a terrible movie aside from when you were actually seeing children walking into the gas chamber and that's just this you know he said it's all it's all fine and it's all just a jerry lewis you know sort of dramatic performance 
but he cho- he chooses to show that. And obviously, you know, it's the early seventies. There's nothing graphic about it. You're not right. seeing, you know, the action actually happen, but you're seeing them ushered in and and so on. So you you pretty much can go right up to that point. Like you know what's going on. It's just what is the directorial choice there? I mean, we saw. I, I, we didn't see. I know. I think it came out that Yui Bowl film in the past year or so that is his like gas chamber holocaust film Uh and the trailer for it is exactly that and that's all it is and it's horrific and it's like what does shock value do to the value of your film and it's like i mean what what is it really adding except from creating scandal and you know it's uh any press is good press i suppose but then what happens when you do that with something um and what you know what's so tricky with the holocaust is that yes it's really yes it's a traumatic horrible thing for certain people but it's such a like in planetary uh suffering that like what what is your game? What is your con there? I mean, that's the thing. At least with the Yui Ball film, you know, the whole idea of adding shock value to a you know subject matter like the Holocaust, where you know it's the Holocaust. We all know it was horrible, right? You know, there's no reason to sort of amp up what that is. Like, if you want horrible related to that, watch you know Night and Fog, right? You know, or something like that, or where, watch where, or watch Inglorious Bastards, which is like you know whatever they called it like a a, a holocaust exploitation or juice exploitation movie or whatever they right. you know which uh works because it's amping up not the tragic elements of that story mm-hmm. you know about that that the holocaust uh concentration camps are treated with respect but the world is told in like a comic kind of spectacle manner and right. that's okay. I mean and and that's why I think Tarantino was able to get away with something like that is because it is set very much in a comic book world. Yeah. Like this is this is a a one big fantastic element thrown, you know, over subject matter like this. And that's where I think this day the clown cried probably completely misses the mark because they're making it as real as possible right you know creating such a realistic situation and then trying to add in this story about a clown which is just it's incredibly incredibly wrong-headed how how much dramatic work has jerry lewis done was there a period where he was going for that oscar well he's got that uh the scorsese film the king of comedy right um, right which is the one that immediately pops into my head which he's he's great in. He's amazing in that movie. Uh doing kind of a, you know, surly comedy legend, kinda hitting close to home for him, I sure. guess. You know. Um so there's that. I mean, there's nothing else that immediately jumps out at me. I'm sure there were other things that came along right. between that and, you know, the bellboy or whatever. You know, I mean there's right. there's something in there where I'm sure he was maybe being a little more serious. But yeah, again though, and that's another thing about it though, is I feel like, okay. I'm Jerry Lewis. Here's this obviously controversial script. You know, I'm going to go in. I'm going to really showcase my acting chops. Next thing I know, bing, bang, boom, here comes Oscar. Kind right. Of thing. And and I get to showcase my acting chops. But, hey, I'm a clown, so I get to do what I've 
made my name on. Exactly. People aren't going to completely forget the fact that I'm, you know, the nutty professor, right. whatever. The thing that's that's really interesting is like, or the thing that you mentioned that's really interesting is that idea that Harry Shearer had this opportunity to see it on, uh, you know, a dubbed VHS and how uh, some of the films that we're going to be looking at later uh, are, you know, the technology has very much changed mm. the way we know and learn and understand these films uh, and what their life winds up being mm. right it's a whole different thing when something's on a reel to when it's on a vhs to when it's elsewhere uh and uh yeah i mean i wonder i mean i even wonder where that vhs even came from that's the <laughs> thing i mean you know at some point you're getting this transferred from a film print onto a vhs tape whether that's someone played it in a screening room and you just turned a camcorder on you know the logistics of which i i'm unsure i don't know how and in, came in, across it. yeah in the 80s that camcorder's very difficult to hide yeah it's very <laughs> difficult to hide um but you bring up the idea of technology sort of helping us understand these movies and i think that's kind of a, a good segue into the next film i wanted to talk about which is uh the what they hope to forever be buried uh roger corman produced fantastic four movie from 1994 quick backstory on this uh, supposedly the story goes Fox had the rights to make a Fantastic Four movie and part of the stipulation was, you know, they had to make the movie before a certain time or else they would be forced to give up these rights and they wouldn't be able to make a Fantastic Four movie. Well, the other part of that was they were sort of waiting for special effects magic to come around a little more, develop a little more. You know, this was the early 90s, so CG was getting there. You know, we're post-Lawnmower Man at this point, but, you know, we're nowhere near Avatar or whatever. Or, you know, the Tim Story Fantastic Four movies of, of the 2000s. So what they decided to do was, you know, they said, we're going to make this Fantastic Four film. Uh, we're just going to throw some money at a production company. They're going to make it for peanuts uh, and then we'll just bury it. Problem being, now we're into the 90s. VHS tapes are all over the place. And also, eventually now, you can watch this movie on YouTube, which is, I think, one of the things when these movies are you know being buried and shelved and whatever, film studios aren't really thinking about. Uh, but now it's a, it's, a, it's a real cause for concern with right. bit torrenting and things like YouTube and, and you know, Vimeo and things like that. Right. It's a lot harder to hide a movie nowadays. Absolutely. I remember, um, you know, not to, not to jump to a different movie, but like films like uh, Song of the South, which mm -hmm. are these major films that, that were out there when we were children that we walked around singing songs from and then suddenly the source of that song was gone was locked away and it was like where did that come from it becomes this ghost and then you know come uh you know the early 2000s all you gotta do is put in an hour of work and you're watching it and you're realizing how, how things get dated but you're also uh it's amazing to think of what you can get your hands on yeah, no, I mean, and this movie I think is a, is a prime example of that. And if you do look it up on YouTube, I mean, it's, it's right there for, for mass consumption. Uh, no one's taking it down. Uh, so I guess to some degree, I guess Fox must not care that much. Um, but it is, uh, a super low budget Fantastic Four film. It looks like something that they would make for Saturday afternoon, you know, children's programming on, on Fox. Now, like I said, it looked like a, for anyone who remembers the Power Rangers. Right. It, it looks like that, like a cheap made-in-Japan television thing. Um, but 
and it makes it makes sense that it looks that way because of who Roger Corman is. You know, I mean, they knew what they were doing. They said, "Here's a guy who can make you know wine out of." toilet water essentially yeah, yeah, <laughs> if exactly. i give him five bucks so do what you can do and uh, i mean it's pretty impressive that he's able to make make a, a a superhero film out of it now for the savvy film goers at home who go to the birds every weekend uh surprise you're in the room with two people who love superhero movies so we can right. certainly yeah. talk to 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 that um but it is interesting that Barring things like the early Batman Tim Burton movies, mm-hmm. uh, nobody was going anywhere near uh, the superhero genre because you couldn't do it. You couldn't pull it off without the technology. So technology, once again, is dictating what's ca- what's possible. And it's so sort of fascinating to think, um, you know, there's a long, long time in filmic history where you're making your movie based on your budget, but mm-hmm. all the tools are there. It's just what can you pull off? then. CGI and computer graphics come into play and you're seeing that it looks terrible right now, but I have to just hold out and wait. So to, to, to have this film and to have a franchise more importantly, right? The money that can be made off of the fantastic four and to have to find a way to get away with it. Right. You're purposefully shelving something. And that's, uh, that's, that's interesting. Two points that you made me think of, uh, just then were one, I think the reason why we saw things like, uh, the Batman franchise with the Burton films, um, which are 89 and 92 or something like that. Uh, and then prior to that, the Superman franchise, they're probably the basest examples of superheroes, you know, because as far as movie making terms go, all you need are some, you know, explosions and wire work. Right. You know, you want to make Superman fly some rear projection and some wires. You're good to go. Whereas you think about something like Fantastic Four where you have people like the Invisible Woman and, you know, Reed Richards whose ability is to stretch all over the place. Making that look believable, you do need computers and and stuff like that. But the second thing I thought of was the fact that they're sitting on this title saying we're going to wait for, uh, you know, computer technology to come along so we can make a better movie. They wait all these years. You know, this this Roger Corman production was 94 and the first Fantastic Four film was in the early 2000s, and the sequel was sort of uh, close after that. The technology didn't help them make better movies. No, it did not. You know, I mean, I guarantee you get a full cut of this Corman film. Watch the the Tim Story films. I think Tim Story directed both of them. They're not going to be better movies. The newer movies will be better looking movies. Sure. But CGI does not a good movie make. No. Uh, they're still... They're still bad movies. And uh, and maybe that's a lesson to be learned, right? Everybody, uh-huh. hopefully that's a lesson that's being learned currently, is that everybody suddenly has the ability, the studios understand all the money merchandising-wise to be made, and they crank out all these movies. Mm-hmm. And suddenly now we're seeing uh, franchises kind of rapidly starting over, which could be a ploy... So, for example, the Spider-Man... Well, Batman does it, right? Obviously very successfully. Right. And then now now Spider-Man's relaunching and essentially making the same movie they made less than a decade or a decade ago again this summer. And, you know, glass half full, they're realizing that they tried to make these movies too quickly and didn't make them good enough, and Mm -hmm. they're going to make them better. Glass half empty... 
they're realizing that there's still a little bit of, you know, blood to squeeze out of this stone and they're just going to reap in more yeah. money. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, that's an interesting point. I think, you know, if you think on the Nolan films, um, so you got Batman Begins in 2005. Three years later in 08, we had Dark Knight. And now in 2012, we're going to have Dark Knight Rises. And that's a good, you know, you have uh, the between the first two, it's three years. And between the second and third is four years. That's a lot longer than we had to wait, I think, for all of those Spider-Man films. Those sure. first three, the Raimi-directed films. Yeah. And I think there is something to be said about that of just, like, letting letting everything just settle. You know, let let everything calm down and seeing, like, okay, well, we made this movie. Let's wait for the next bit of, you know, technological advancement to come along or, or mm-hmm. whatever. I can say the thing that's just awkward about this new Spider-Man movie probably is that, you know – What's going to be different? It's going to come out in 3D, probably. Right. That's what we're dealing with. Right. Which is maybe the next step in things that, you know, the it might be the next step in the technological advancement that we don't yet have perspective on, right? 3D yeah. is uh, per, potentially retrospectively, uh, well, I wish we didn't do that because it would have been a better movie. Or, you know, we spent a lot of money on this instead of on something that actually mattered. But even with, you know, even with CG uh, and the Spider-Man series, Mm -hmm. uh, which is one of many series of movies that get certainly tail out at the third one, and it's um, almost unwatchable. That third film is running on fumes, yes. The first film's um, computer graphics aged so fast. At the time, you sit down and everybody's like, wow, it's so cool. And not two years later was that movie virtually unwatchable because it looked like something you'd be seeing on, like, the sci-fi network. I mean, (laughs) it looked bad. And, like, while the first movie's not a terrible movie, it just doesn't look right anymore. looks like uh, Spider-Man versus Crocosaurus or something. (laughs) Exactly. Friday Night at Nine on (laughs) sci-fi. So it's it's, kind of crazy to think about that. And then what's exciting is that you'd see some filmmakers now like um, Duncan Jones, originally Zoe Bowie, David Bowie's son, right. who's made two uh, kind of science fiction films in Moon, which is a phenomenal movie uh, with Sam Rockwell and uh, Source Code, which was a bit more mainstreamy, but actually a pretty good movie as well, um, that have effects, have CG, uh, but you use computer graphics sparingly and it, pays off in spades i mean it's unbelievable how good moon is it's a small movie it's character driven it's performance driven it has a good script i'm sure it didn't cost even one one hundredth of you know spider-man 3 or whatever yeah but it's uh but it uses cg um as something that serves the story instead of something that the story will eventually hopefully catch up with i guess duncan jones is one of those filmmakers who i can't wait for another i don't know five years to pass and then we can finally do like a week-long duncan jones retro here at the burns or something i think he's one of the the most exciting guys working right now uh directorially and yeah i mean that's that's what's really impressive is when you can make you can make meat and potatoes sci-fi it's just total bare bones you know and it's you're right. It's way better than anything you're watching in, in Spider-Man or, or anything like that. And speaking of movie making and the process of trying to get a movie made, it kind of sort of brings us into the third movie here I wanted to talk about, which is The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. This 
for those of you who don't know the backstory about this, constantly plagued, you know, cinematic bad luck charm Terry Gilliam, uh, the poor guy, uh, was trying for ages, um, trying to get this Don Quixote film made. And they started filming it, I guess, in 2000. Is that the idea? It may have been earlier than that. And just every single thing that could go wrong with making a movie happened to Terry Gilliam. Right. You know, his the star of the movie was seriously injured and, and all of this. And basically what Gilliam was able to do was turn what would have essentially be a behind-the-scenes featurette on a DVD mm-hmm. into the great documentary Lost in La Mancha about just – the horrible process he went through trying to make this movie and how, you know, every I feel like The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is one of those films that since the first time it failed, at least once a year, you hear some interview or some story is written about how Gilliam's gearing up. He's going to try to make this Don Quixote movie again. Right. And, and, and he'll be, as, yeah, he'll be doing it till the end of time then. I mean, yeah. it'll never be made. If there's ever, if there's anything... Uh, that we don't know about life and existence, then it is that certain things just won't happen. And yeah. that's that's uh, that's his white whale, I think. It absolutely <laughs> is his white whale. And you just feel so bad for him because, I mean, you know, Terry Gilliam makes good movies. Absolutely. Um, he's made some great movies. Uh, Brazil, 12 Monkeys, uh, just to name a couple. But just if, – and if you've ever seen Lost in La Mancha, and if you haven't, you should definitely check it out. You just – it's it's so almost I mean not painful it's a bit of an exaggeration but you just feel so bad watching this director trying to get a film made that he's obviously really passionate about and the world around him is just crumbling and this is the only one of the the three films that we're talking about today that it's it's not finished I mean the other two the Fantastic Four and the Day the Clown Cried are both more or less completed projects. Right. And what, well, is, right. And Fantastic Four only completed so that it can be shoved away and so that they can make it later. Yeah. But still, right, completed enough. Um, but yeah, but with this, I mean, you say uh, uh, maybe it's not painful, <laughs> but I think it absolutely is. I uh-huh. think most people watching it are going to feel horrible for Terry Gilliam <laughs> while watching yeah. this movie yeah. because so much of it is taking place in like a hot desert climate <laughs> and he's just sweating and and freaking out because everything's going wrong yeah. obviously it's taking place during you know the times of Cervantes Don Quixote and so they'll be filming a shot and uh you know F-14 fighter jets flying from America to Iraq will just cross the no-fly zone that they've scheduled to shoot in so there's no planes up there but just like every every element of the world is working against the film and uh and so that's you know so tragic but what's so cool is you know you see films that are films within within a film um one that comes to mind is uh tristram shandy which is a narrative film but it uh you know it's about a man making a movie and uh and it's so exciting to kind of watch that process but uh it's pretty exciting to watch it um, 
you know, from a nonfiction perspective. And, uh, and it's just as sort of action packed. And it's really interesting to see how a extremely creative person, Terry Gilliam handles, you know, his actors from Jean Rochefort to Johnny Depp. I mean, it's, it's a real film being made here. And, uh, and, you know, he's trying his best to cobble it together. And it's just, you see it like sand, it slips through his fingers time and time again. I mean, what's, what I think is the best you can say about the whole, men who killed Don Quixote failure and I guess still continued revival and subsequent failures that will come forever until Terry Gilliam retires. The best thing you can say about the whole thing is that we were able to get lost in La Mancha out of it. Totally. Although I will say I think in some respect it may have been kind of cool if you just decide I'm going to try my best to finish this movie you know disaster and planes aside and here you have this movie where Don Quixote is in the desert and all of a sudden these planes are coming it's totally anachronistic and it's like very like Bunuel or something well like yeah that. and having been the guy who made Fear and Loathing all he has to do is go what were those and it'll work yeah. <laughs> you know like just never he never knows that character ever again yeah but I mean we also have seen what happens when he just makes a movie no matter what which was his most recent film uh, I yeah. believe the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, which is the film uh, that Heath Ledger was working on immediately after the dark Knight, Um, And obviously he passes away and uh, Terry Gilliam says, not again. Yeah. <laughs> and wants to make the film and uh, enlists uh, all these other sort of handsome leading men of the same demographic, whether it's Colin Farrell or Johnny Depp or, other folks are in there. Who am I missing out on? Is I, it Ewan McGregor? No. I don't think he's in there. Whoever we're forgetting is going, ah. Well, they're not because they're not listening, but they would be doing that. Uh, but anyways, and um, and makes a film where your lead character kind of illogically becomes different people. There's a way in which he framed it because uh, in that film – um, it's kind of about this like Commedia dell'arte traveling mm-hmm. troupe, and then they have sort of access to this other world. So when he goes into the other world, he becomes one of these other actors. Right. So that that kind of functions, but the film itself, you know, you can feel that there's a good movie in there, but that there's desperation in putting it together, and it just kind of you know it becomes something pretty beautiful to look at, but that's kind of about it. It's very beautiful to look at, and I think that's one of two positive things that come out of that movie. The other is the great performance by Tom Waits as maybe the devil or something. (laughs) Probably the devil. Yeah, it's a big devil with a question mark on it, but he's fabulous. I mean, he's never bad in a movie. You can put him in anything, and it's just awesome to see Tom Waits acting. Right. Well, maybe not even acting, because I think in real life, Tom Waits is maybe the devil. If there was one recording <laughs> artist today that may actually, in fact, be the devil, it's Tom Waits. But he's a likable devil. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's a little devil. But, I mean, that just goes to show – I mean, I because th- I think ultimately the film is a failure. And to that degree, I think if it wasn't for the man who killed Don Quixote existing and having, you know, still to this day, you know, I'm sure Terry Gilliam wakes up in the morning and goes, Quixote, and then gets on <laughs> with his day, you know. But if he wasn't still plagued by the horrible experience of making that movie or trying to make that movie, I think he may have just let clearer heads prevail and let Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus sort of fall away. And that would be Terry Gilliam's most famous shelved film. Right. And I mean, and it happens. Here's the thing is that we're we're picking out three, you know, shell films and we'll talk about market as well. 
Um, but there's endless amounts of these. There's so many of them. And then there's a selection that have a very interesting story behind them. There are a lot of them that are just shelved. Yeah. Wait a second. I got to go be James Bond now. Sorry. You know, whatever it is. Right. I mean, this is something that's always happening. Um, but there are a lot of situations where it's kind of interesting as to why it ha- why it's happened. Yeah, these were three that I just thought kind of had, you know, good stories behind them. And you're right. There are so many things that are, that are I have to go be James Bond now. <laughs> Goodbye, small romantic comedy I'm making or whatever it is. Right. Because um, a good example of a story that was shelved that – or a movie that was shelved that doesn't have a great story is uh, the film that came out last year. It was a comedy called Take Me Home Tonight uh, with Topher Grace. It was an 80s set comedy we're just going to have a big party ridiculousness thing uh and it was shelved because the film distributor had a problem with the amount of cocaine that was used in the film Uh and so they just sort of uh because the original title was something to do with like the life of american youth or something like that Uh american uh youth and all the cocaine that was in the movie they said you know this isn't a great combination and they just shelved it for three some some odd years and then they change the title to take me home tonight and then and then the movie came out after all that and then no one cared anyway right it just went away forever so the title take me home tonight suggests bad american values like you shouldn't go home with anybody tonight so if you're doing that then there can be a lot of drugs in your movie well but- no i think it was more they just chose that because they really wanted to play that eddie money song which is all over that trailer <laughs> so i think that's what that was um so that brings us to margaret directed again by kenneth lonergan it's he's a he's a more known uh artist for his for his work in the theater uh he's written and directed several plays but he made a big splash on the film scene 12 years ago with you can count on me Mm -hmm, uh, mm which is i think a fabulous movie it's a film that i I mean i've seen it discussed in screenplay writing classes Mm -hmm. it's just um it's extremely well performed uh, this is really early on, pretty early on in Laura Linney's career, yes. but really, really early on in Ruffalo, Mark Ruffalo's career. It's yep. probably the film that makes him, uh, puts him on the map, and he has made incredibly good choices ever since then yeah. and remains an extremely well-respected actor. Uh, but it's a small film. It has sort of a play-like feel to it, um, but it knows – you know, it's one of those films that like walks on the edge of being really tragic and dramatic while being extremely poignant and funny at the same time. And it it works. Uh, Margaret is a, a bit darker than that this time around. This, the story centers around uh, a girl named Lisa, played by Anna Paquin, uh, who is a high school girl who witnesses uh, a woman get hit by a bus. And it just the film deals with you know, Lisa trying to cope with this situation the best any 17-year-old girl could could cope with such a horrific event. And like we mentioned, it was it was held up uh, in, in post-production with uh, – there was a lot to say about the length of the film. As it stands now, what wound up being theatrically released is two and a half hours. Um, so what you will see this Wednesday at the Burns is a two and a half hour, very, very, you know, hard subject matter – drama which is you know right. not to say that you can count on me as a light film but it's a lot lighter than than margaret i feel and i'm sure it's shorter i mean it, it's yes. it's a it's a uh you can count on me feels like a very compact film mm-hmm. uh in the same way that a play might feel kind of you know the the amount of time is that you need to tell that story right and he you know 
Lonergan ha- does You Can Count On Me, it does extremely well for a film of its size and a very indie film. Yep. Part of um, the reasons why it's doing well is because he's uh, close with uh, a guy named Martin Scorsese. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you've heard of him. Heard and of so there's, there's this um, – you know, he's a guy who obviously has – established himself in the theater world and Mm -hmm. is well respected but also has the ability to shift over to the filmmaking world and in some ways it seems didn't have to put up as much with the studios because of some of the people like Scorsese that had that he had befriended and I know that on uh, Margaret he had Final Cut on this film I mean part of and what Final Cut means for those of you who don't know is often a director will make a film the editor will cut together they'll all have they'll all have a great time making the film that they want to make right. and then all of a sudden the studio comes in and maybe shows it to a select audience and says well they don't like it when that happens so we're just going to change it right. I don't care if you're you know playing that moment up for the duration of the film I don't care if uh, the character falls into the blue ocean at the end and you've put blue on your characters and in the color palette of the film the entire time to lead to that moment we're just gonna cut it out because uh, it doesn't test well with audiences so Lonergan has this uh great situation which actually is something that we're seeing a bit here and there uh in both the tv world and film world people who are getting that kind of final cut deal uh but to have that you get to be you get to be stay an artist, right? Yeah. You you get to avoid being a businessman a little bit more or a business person, and uh, and so with this film, he has final cut, but um, but I think that's where in this issue of shelving it came. You know, I think that the the studio wanted it to be shorter, um, and I think that Lonergan did not. Yeah, and I think you know from looking at it from the studio's point of view, it's really hard to sell a two and a half hour small drama set in New York city, you know, that just pretty much follows around this teenager as she goes from person to person trying to, you know, reach some sort of closure about this horrible experience that she's had. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's hard to sell. And to a certain degree, it's kind of hard to watch. Like this is not, Margaret is not an easy film uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And the reason it's, uh, it's playing here and there is because you know, there's been sort of this uh, uprise in the film community, uh, mainly starting with critics. Um, this movie got huge critical acclaim when it finally came out. The, the other thing was there wasn't uh, – critics uh, didn't get screeners for it. You know, there wasn't any advanced stuff like that. Really, you know, the distributor trying to move on from from the project. And so now there's been this – uh, surge in the film community saying, no, this movie deserves to be shown. And theaters like the Burns and, and other places across the country are sort of dedicating some time to just showing this movie, mm-hmm. which was the basis for for why we're we're playing it on Wednesday, which I think is a, a totally great thing, you know, supporting, you know, small movies and, and stuff like that, that, you know, deserve to be seen on a big screen. I mean, one thing I will say about about Margaret and, you know, admittedly, I wasn't the biggest fan of the movie. I, I think there's a good movie in in Margaret, I agree. I, I, yeah. I legitimately think that, and I, that's why I think it's still worth seeing. And one of the things that's incredibly worthwhile is Lonergan leaves in a lot of these great sweeping shots of New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to look at this movie, you know, in twenty years as one of those movies we talk about nowadays. Like, oh, that's great, old time New York. You know, you have to see Margaret because it shows the city as it was in you know two thousand five, technically. Right. Um, you know, so that's that's a that's a big part of it, and and. Anna Paquin too, who who plays who plays uh, Lisa, 
it's a great performance. Absolutely. She's great in this movie. It's uh it's amazing. I mean, this movie's made in when, two thousand two thousand five. Yeah. So uh it's amazing that she's had over a decade of being able to play a high school student convincingly in <laughs> yeah. a film, but she does it and she does it very well. And this film is filled with great performances by great actors. Mark Ruffalo, uh, Matt Damon, Matthew Broderick. Who else am I not thinking of right now? Allison Janney. Allison Janney plays the the woman who's hit by the bus. I mean, uh, Jean Reno. Does oh, Jean a very Reno, nice who job is, who's film. great in that movie. If you're looking for the comedic levity right. in a movie like this, that's look no further than Jean Reno and Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Yeah, um, and also Lonergan himself gets in front of the camera as Lisa's father, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is a really interesting thing. Um, and I read some review of the film where they said that it's kind of funny that Lonergan playing the father who they only communicate over the phone. Mm-hmm. So he's essentially giving, you know, his actor slash his you know movie daughter direction. You know, uh-huh. he, he he speaks to her with all this advice about how to handle the situation and and whatever. So yeah, this is a movie that's it's peppered uh with with really great performances. Absolutely. And and I think you know this is a movie also that I know that in the week since we've both seen it uh in the city we've had conversations with uh uh film critic friends of ours and other sort of cinephiles who everybody's feeling differently about this film and they're feeling uh vehement about how they feel about it yeah and uh and it's you know one of the great things about uh film going is debating a movie and latching on to certain elements that work extremely well and this film does uh have those elements and there's something in this movie uh you know and obviously we're not going to spoiler anything but there's something about this film uh and the film that I think Andrew's talking about as the 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 great film that's within it is uh, about what it is to be a teenager um, and about characters sh- sort of getting shoved into an extremely tragic real life situation, but still being a uh, teenager who doesn't know how to cope with that and who is self-centered in that teenagers often think, surprised that the world revolves around them. And really thinking about that in a lot of different ways, not just on a personal basis, not just on a um, uh, on a way in which sort of society sees a teenager, but also ways in which, you know, uh, opera plays a large role in this film and the way in which sort of the over dramatics of opera uh in a, are a parallel to sort of the overdramatics of adolescence and how you feel things so largely and how everything is an explosion. Whereas when you get to being an adult, you try to make sure explosions are kept small and short and you keep living, you know? Yeah. So, and I think that when the movie reflects on what it is to be a teenager, um, it's really interesting. It's really good. Uh, so it's a, it's a it's an interesting film to see. But yeah, there's a I mean this is it does in some ways feel like a rough cut. And that is not uh um that's not an indictment of the film and mm-hmm. I think that's what Lonergan wants it to feel like, but you can understand that those people and you know Fox Searchlight obviously that's the indie side of that of the Fox Studio. So they know good movies. This isn't the same people who are putting out Fantastic 4, but I mean it is and it isn't. But um but you can understand how a studio who obviously is interested 
financially in a film could see this film as being larger than it needed to be. Yeah. It's creativity versus, you know, business. So I think, you know, the the strongest thing this movie has going for it is that, you know, just like you mentioned, it is it's going to it's going to split opinions. And that's that's exactly what, you know, we want. We want movie going to be, you know, you're totally right. It's no fun when everyone feels the same exact way about every single part of a movie. And to say one thing about this movie is that it's going to make people, you know, talk and argue and debate. And that's that's the fun of going to the movies. Margaret plays here at the Burns this Wednesday, the 18th uh, at 2 o'clock, 5 o'clock and 8 o'clock. Tickets are on sale now at BurnsFilmCenter.org. I think that's probably going to wrap it up here. Uh, so, Sean, thanks for coming on, as always. Thanks for having me. Uh, if you want any more information about tickets, lab classes, anything related to the Burns Film Center or Media Arts Lab, be sure to check out our website, www.burnsfilmcenter.org. Be sure to check out past episodes of this podcast, either on iTunes or at podcast.burnsfilmcenter.org. And if you have any questions for me, feel free to please email me at podcast at burnsfilmcenter.org. So until next time, I'm Andrew Jupin, and this has been JBFC Podcast.